0: Welcome to New Books Network on Education. My name is Greg Soden, and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Catherine Fishman Weaver and Jill Klingen, the co authors of Teaching Women's and Gender Studies, which includes separate middle school and high school editions. This episode focuses on the middle school edition, which encourages teachers to integrate women's and gender studies content, lessons, and projects into middle school classrooms. There are seven units organized around the four key concepts of introducing women's and gender studies for middle school, art, emotion, resistance, diversity, inclusion, representation, and intersectionality. This book contains reproducible resources that any teacher in middle school can use. Just a note for listeners who might also be interested in the high school episode, both episodes on these two books contain the same 16-minute introduction to the authors, so if you go to the high school episode next, you can fast-forward through the first 16 minutes to get straight to the high school-specific content. Both editions of Teaching Women's and Gender Studies were released in 2023 by Rutledge's Eye on Education series. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Katherine Fishman-Weaver and Jill Klingen. Dr. Catherine Fishman-Weaver and Jill Klingon. Thank you so much for joining me for this uh, conversation on New Books Network. Uh, it's a delight to have you both here. And I'm wondering if we can start off by, you know, having you both introduce yourselves a little bit to the audience out there so they know who you are and what you do. Dr. Fishman-Weaver, do you want to go ahead and give us a, a start on that first?
1: Sure. Thanks so much for having us, Greg. Um, So my name is Katherine Fishman Weaver. I use she her pronouns. I'm an educator, a school leader and author. Uh, My background is in public schools, particularly around work with neurodiverse students. Um, And currently I serve as the executive director of Mizzou Academy, which is this wonderful global blended K-12 lab school where I work with amazing people like the two of you. Yes. Additionally, I'm an associate teaching professor. My areas of expertise are on school leadership and community engagement. Um, And then I also serve as a court-appointed special advocate for youth who are navigating the foster care
0: system. Fabulous. Jill, how about you?
2: So I always wanted to be an English teacher. Like that was my dream ever since I was a little girl. Um, When I was in high school, my science teacher thought I should pursue another path, So um, this is evidence of how influential teachers can be. I I did. I diverted off that path, um, earned an undergraduate degree in psychology, started a master's program in psychology, and then I decided to go back to what my heart loved, um, which was English, and I earned a master's degree in English. So I've taught on the college level. I have homeschooled my daughter for a few years, and now I am an assistant professor of professional practice for the college of education and human development at Mizzou and a department chair for comp and lit at Mizzou Academy. And this has really been, um, such an amazing journey for me. And it's, it's been the favorite thing that I've done. (laughs) It's career-wise.
0: Well, And for the listeners out there, I do have to acknowledge what Catherine said, that we are actually all colleagues and we all work in the same school. But it is such a thrill to have you both here because as colleagues, I I know you both on a personal level. We've collaborated on so many projects over the years. But you two have this amazing new project that you have done together, which I'm so excited because that's what brings us all together. You two have a... A couple of new books that have come into the world recently, Uh, they are called Teaching Women's and Gender Studies, but one of the books focuses on grades 9 through 12, and the other focuses on middle school in grades 6 through 8. And before we dive into the books themselves, um, I'm super curious about your own backgrounds and interests. In The content and material related to women's and gender studies in your own educational pathways, because um, this is an area in schools that I have seen taught in the public school system um, and in other school systems and private in the private world as well. But it feels like this is a, a, a an area that has a lot of potential for growth as far as curriculum goes. And I'm just curious about both of your pathways about learning about women's and gender studies in education and kind of what's your origin and interest along that path has been like.
1: You know, as I kind of look back at my pathway, I, I grew up in a family that was uh, really interested in ways that we could make the world a better place, that um, was committed to inclusion and to community service. Um, and my parents and my grandparents um, fostered that spirit within me, Um, but it wasn't until college when I learned about women's and gender studies as as a field, as a discipline. Um, So during my undergraduate time at Mizzou, I changed my major a whole bunch of times. I wanted to study everything, and I kind of ended up studying everything. (laughs) as much as one can, Um, but three of the departments that stayed constant throughout um, all of my self-discovery in undergraduate years um, were women's and gender studies, sociology, and English, Um, and my women's and gender studies mentors were so important to my own development um, as a scholar, as a teacher, later as a teacher, um, as you know the, the kind of leader that I'm still trying to become. I remember when I learned about feminist scholarship as a discipline um, that I felt seen kind of in a way that I, I hadn't previously. Um, and also that I saw the world, you know, with a, a mindset that's that's persisted, you know, into today. My work with with those scholars, Um, And we got to go back and talk to some of my teachers from undergraduate days uh, during the writing of this project. And that was really a treat. Um, But my work with those scholars really set me on my research and teaching pathways. So as I look at the different Mm. projects I've engaged in, um, they're all connected to gender, to equity, to inclusion. Um, And a lot of that started when I was this wide eyed, super optimistic, naive, goofy 20 year old.
0: And uh, Jill, tell me a little bit about, tell me a little bit about your, um, you know, your pathway through into this content.
2: Well, you know, I was w- without ever knowing what the term meant. I think I was always interested in women's and gender studies. I was, you know, um, a voracious reader, and I always was drawn to books with really strong female protagonists. And, um, you know, that's just, that's just what what pulled me. Um, and you know, as, you know, even, you know, when I was in elementary school, middle school, high school. And then um, and when I was in graduate school, I took my first feminist studies course and it just sparked my interest. It introduced all of these um new ideas to me that made a lot of the beliefs and ideas that I had, but didn't quite know how how to articulate, it just kind of helped those click, click into space. And, um, you know, I just I just remember studying in class and just thinking um, oh, there's just nowhere in the world I would rather be than right here, right this second, like talking about this thing. And I think that just really propelled that interest more. And then um, when I, you know, got involved in education, I could see, you know, and, and seeing my own kids and their courses that they were taking. And I just saw that there was a gap in students learning about women's and gender studies. And so we really see these books as a way to help students work toward justice and inclusion and representation um, in their own lives. And we're excited about that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Let's dive into these. Um, tell me a little bit about the origin of this project, because, you know, two books basically at the same time, this is not for the faint of heart. One book enough is enough. Uh, you know, as far as like, you know, the writing process is so difficult and the editing process, it's, uh, it's a huge thing. It's a huge undertaking. So, two books at once kind of blew me away whenever I heard about this. So, I want to know about the, the, uh, the genesis, like the origin of, you know, this idea that, that came to become two books in the world at the same time.
2: So several years ago, we started developing a resource list for educators for Women's History Month, and that was always one of my very favorite projects to work on with Catherine. It was um, just so fun and inspiring to create lessons and activities for teachers to incorporate into their classrooms. It was um, was a wonderful experience. And then one day, Catherine said to me, hey, what, what if we expanded on these ideas and turned them into a book? And um, then we wrote the book and realized it was two books. <laughs> so so we did that. <laughs> so it started out as one book and turned into
1: two. <laughs> when we would work on the Women's History Month teaching resource, um, and also that, you know, that was a, a favorite project for for me each spring with Jill as well, um, that at the end of the project, the end of the resource list, we would always say, you know, this is work that is 365 days a year. This isn't work that only happens in March. Um, and we would encourage educators to to continue these lessons and to continue the themes of these lessons throughout the year. Uh, and then in March, again, we would release, you know, kind of a new resource. And so Jill and I had talked about how can we grow this into something that is three hundred and sixty five days a year? I mean we had a few ideas kind of early on, you know, is it a course? Is it a course we offer at our school? Um, and then is it a book? and and Jill and I both love books and writing. Um, so much. And so when we thought, well, maybe this is, you know, when it first started one book, we did some research to see, well, does the book already exist? Um, And the answer, you know, as far as we could find was no, um, there weren't books out there that gave, you know, kind of ready to use lesson plans and care notes for educators who wanted to engage deeply with women's and gender studies in the middle or high school classroom. You know, it's Toni Morrison who said, If there's a book that you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, that you have to write it. And for Jill and me, you know, the same was true for there was this book that we wanted to teach and we wanted teachers to have and we couldn't find it anywhere. And so we felt we felt sort of this obligation to carry the work forward.
0: Catherine, I'm curious about what is like how prevalent women's and gender studies courses are in schools. What do you know about how much schools do or do not teach these areas of content? From middle school through high school, what is going on out there that is happening versus what is not happening?
1: In our research, we found very few middle and high schools were offering standalone courses on women's and gender studies. What was harder for us to investigate um, were units within often social studies or language arts courses um, or other kind of special topics courses. Um, so that that's harder for us to investigate you know, are there women's and gender studies units? Um, Certainly, we know that there are teachers who are bringing um, a background in women's and gender studies to their teaching of content um, and also to their pedagogical practices. Um, But as standalone resources or standalone courses, um, Jill and I couldn't find much in the middle and high school when we were doing kind of our our review of the market, um, what other books exist that are like this. We found there's a lot of books out there that celebrate women leaders, biography books, lists of, you know, women who changed the world, women who changed the path of science um, and this sort of thing, um, but not necessarily resources that were grounded in women's and gender studies as a discipline or feminist scholarship.
0: I'm wondering about both of your uh creative processes during the during the writing process what was the what are some of the main memories that you both have about the writing and organization process behind you know outlining the chapters figuring out the way these books are going to be put together like what your collaborative process was going back and forth what the process was like of getting like the guests that are strewn throughout the books um jill maybe you want to go ahead and share some some of your major memories about some of those things
2: So I had never written a book before, so it was, uh, you know, it was equal parts scary and exciting, some days more scary or some days more exciting, but it was, and it was really intense because we wrote both books in less than a year. And so we would just kind of take a concept, it was a lot, so we would just kind of take a concept and kind of talk through it and figure out, um, you know, what areas that we wanted to address and then you know we would just kind of piecemeal sort of an outline on there and then we would just both pick different areas um to fill in on them and we just kind of would just go back and forth with writing and then getting together and and collaborating and you know just doing a lot of research and and lots and lots of writing (laughs) one of the biggest memories was just the day that we figured out it was going to be like we were like we have two books i mean that was probably the (laughs) Out of all the days with all the many memories, that was probably the most <laughs> momentous day of like, wow, oh wow, this is this is bigger than we thought it was.
0: <laughs> Catherine, what are some of your major standout memories?
1: Well, first, thank goodness for Google Docs. Like, I don't even know how I functioned in any area of my life um <laughs> prior to Google Drive. Um, so the collaborative uh potential that Google gave. Jill and me to work in real time together was really critical for this project um, for us to be able to be on the document at the same time and have live conversations um, about the content was really important. Um, so pretty early on, we decided that we wanted to utilize advisory editors. and I know we'll talk some more about that in this conversation, but just to introduce the idea, Jill and I, you know we have we have different lived experiences from each other and also some similar lived experiences from each other. And we knew that positionality mattered. um, And we wanted to employ a a multiplicity of voices to the greatest extent possible. And so as we were building out kind of this advisory editor board, um, one of the first people we reached out to was one of my mentor professors from undergraduate women's and gender studies days. And that's Dr. Elisa Glick, um, who is an English and women's and gender studies professor at Mizzou. And she graciously um said yes to to helping us um she said you know like like great teachers do that she believed in the work and wanted to help us get there and so we had sent her a draft of our first concept so kind of the first couple chapters um, for her notes and feedback and i remember you know dr glick prints prints things out and does notes in the margin and pen and I went to her house, and she wasn't home. And it was like on an envelope on her front porch. And I was like, oh, you know, like <laughs> what does this great teacher think of our work? Um, and she had really important notes um, that challenged and pushed our thinking, and that informed uh, our continued writing in the book, um, particularly around representation, um, trans inclusion, the the scholarship that sort of the undergirds the whole book. It was just a really neat moment, I think um, for both of us, and then, you know for me, particularly since I had worked with this amazing teacher twenty years prior um, to be continuing to learn from from experts in the field as Jill and I were crafting these what became two books.
0: So in these books, uh, Teaching Women's and Gender Studies, there is a grades six through eight specific edition. And whenever we think about, whenever I think about sixth grade, my own daughter is going to be in sixth grade next year. So I think about her a lot whenever I'm looking through the grade six through eight edition. And so that was a really powerful connection for me for this particular middle school edition. And what I'm curious about is um how to how to bring these kinds of content and topics into a middle school age classroom. What I want to know from, from from you two is how do you propose introducing women's and gender studies to specifically the middle-aged students? And I'm wondering if there's any differences to how you would introduce it to middle school versus high school.
1: Well, can we just talk for a minute about how wonderful middle school students are? Amazing. Um, they, <laughs> they have such a special place in my heart. Um, I love this age group. Um, so, like, this is the time of life. Um, when you're starting to figure out who you are, what you stand for, who who your people are going to be, and yes, we you know continue to answer those questions for the rest of our lives. Um, but I think so much of the origin kind of begins in that grade six through eight time. Um, so I just love that time on its own. Um, I love middle school students' sense of humor, their boldness, they're they're figuring things out, and. I think all of those things lend themselves um, to studying topics like the topics that are in our teaching women's and gender studies books. You know, as we talked about with the high school edition, I think the best place to start is always with what our students already know. So our students already um, have experiences and opinions and perspectives, and they're bringing those into our into the classroom and they have those about gender they have mm. those about feminism they have those about justice and activism and so if we learn from our students and we let our students lead the way they're going to lead a way forward that is pedagogically and developmentally appropriate um and so that's where we start and then we know that as we you know for example unpack SDG 5 which is on gender equality, um, that there can be some charged, difficult, really heavy topics. And so with the middle school book in particular, uh, Jill and I thought deeply about how can we infuse care, how can we preview topics in advance um, and let teachers know what might be coming um, so that we can give them some tools to navigate the bravest and safest way forward. And that can also look like making decisions about what to include and and not to include um, as you teach forward. So if you continue to go back to what is it that students know, our middle school students know a lot um, and can really lead the way.
0: Something that's really interesting to me about that is I have heard my daughter and her own friends who are currently in fifth grade talking about ways that, that boys and girls have different kinds of lives. Like to me, this doesn't seem like it's out of reach for this age group because I see my daughter and her friends having those kinds of conversations in their personal time already. And so I was like, oh my gosh, they're this is not developmentally inappropriate to talk about these things. This is exactly what the kids are talking about on their free time. So that was a real powerful connection for me as well as hearing them talking about it and realizing that they're actually ready for it in sixth grade, which is one of the big pushbacks that I would imagine that this kinds of content would get at the middle school. But I'm like, no, they're they're ready. It's really fascinating to me to realize that.
2: They're living it. They're yeah. living it. They are at the cusp of those moments. when I mean, what an exciting um, time when they are really, I think Catherine said this already, but really starting to really think critically about what they believe in who they are, and it's like, you know, some of their- ideas are just, you know, they're being generated and they're looking at the world around them and they're looking at their family system and their friends and their, and, you know, uh, social media, all these things that influence them. And this is, um, they are, they're already thinking about this and discussing this. And this just gives students an opportunity at this age to really start exploring that in a deep way that's also creative and interesting and fun and engaging and plants in them these ideas about being able to make a difference in their um you know in their own schools in their own communities in their own families
0: i want to know about the art emotion and resistance unit that is uh, or the the section in the book which has two units within it i personally am a, a huge art fan. I go to the art museums regularly. I am constantly trying to examine different kinds of art in the world. So this was a really fascinating and powerful section for me personally. Um, so tell me a little bit about the, uh, the two units that are in the art emotion and resistance section.
1: So we open with a unit on affective development. My dissertation research looked at affective development um, strategies for supporting, you know, healthy, healthy affective development with student communities um, from a feminist perspective. And so getting to apply that work in a really practical way through the middle school book was just a joy, and I use that word intentionally um, because joy is one of the concepts that we study uh, in the unit on affective development. Um, So both of the units center joy, creativity, and critique. Um, They also affirm that all emotions are valid and that anger and joy can be powerful forms of resistance. So in Affective Development, our students learn with great social scientists and activists, Dina Simmons, Carol Gilligan, Malala Yousafzai, and Audre Lorde, and we explore what is joy, what is anger, what is resistance. We recognize that all feelings give us information, right? So feelings are information. And then how can we listen to the messages from those feelings, um, and use those messages to propel us forward to greater justice? Um, How can we lean into the feelings that we have to live boldly as our authentic selves? Um, These I mean, man, these are the lessons that I think would have made a huge difference for me as a middle school student um, had I had access to them.
0: I'm wondering if there's a what kind of assessment opportunities students have in in this uh, section of the book to to demonstrate what they've learned in relation to art, emotion, resistance.
2: In the second unit, in the unit four of this one, students really, really explore like the feminist art movement and they explore the. Um, You know several artists who use um, their artistic style and their medium to you know focus on themes of racism and sexism, and they all they take we take all of those and then students are able to look at them and then create their own um, you know after everything that we that the students learn like for example. Uh, students look through, um, they study um, Emma Amos's work on um, preparing for a facelift, which scrutinizes um, racism and sexism and cultural expectations of female beauty. And so then students have the opportunity to create a collage doing the same sort of thing that we also look at the, uh, which Catherine already mentioned the Maestra piece mural in San Francisco students are able then to create a mural themselves. Um, you know, a classroom mural students study Shamsia has street art as resistance, uh, which she had, she is honestly one of m- my favorite um, artists that I explored in this whole process. And She is um, Afghanistan's first street artist, and her art is just shows um, this empowered woman in Afghanistan that just these murals of these pictures pop up over Afghanistan and just inspire people. So we also encourage students to do their own graffiti art. Um, So all of of the the things that students learn from these uh, artists, then they have an opportunity to express it in their own way as well.
0: Fantastic. I wanna know a little bit about the diversity, inclusion, and representation section of the book as well.
2: This one, you know, we talk about um it's sort of it all builds on each other. So in this lesson, we really want to focus on representation. And this lesson, uh, you know, students do the Artivist Project in the 9th through 12th book. In this uh, in the middle school book, we also introduce students to Artivism. And we ask students, how can young people use their creative talents to um, advance justice? Students also in this uh, unit explore trans representation, Mm. and they um, just learn about everyday advocacy for trans individuals, and they also learn about trans and non-binary activists who are just trying to create a new narrative for a changing world. We also focus on disability rights in this unit. Uh, You know, 15% of the global population has a disability and yet so many of these individuals, um, they're missing from our curriculum, they're missing from art, they're missing from media. And so, and especially if they are, uh, you know, in a marginalized community, like um, they're a woman of color, that and so we explore the neurodiversity movement and take really an approach to that to show um dif- different disability activists and what and what they are doing, and then we also talk about representation in government and the gender disparities in leadership. And we have a timeline that students go through, and they just kind of learn about key figures who have helped shift representation in in government.
0: Catherine, what do you like about the diversity, inclusion, representation section of the book?
1: Everything. (laughs) 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 Um, Let me talk a little bit about Unit 6. So Unit 6 is what closes the Diversity, Inclusion, and Representation Unit. And so this unit's called, from our ancestors, Change Movements for a More Just World. Um, And I love that it's our last pedagogical unit in the book. And then we can talk some more about the pro seminar in a minute. So much of who I am personally, I feel like I owe to my grandmothers their legacy of care um, continues to inspire me every day. We still have my maternal grandmother with us. she turns 95 next week. Um, my paternal grandmother lived with us for for a number of years um, and then lived very close to us um, until she she passed away about 20 years ago. but I think about her all the time. In these units, we learn from our ancestors and we lean into those stories from our elders, recognizing that there are many ways to be a family, right? Um, So not everybody has access to their grandmothers to go and learn from those stories, um, but we do all have access to elders in our community that we can learn from. And so I'll share just two kind of examples from Unit 6 about this work of learning from our ancestors and learning from the elders in our community. Um, so one of the activists that we study is Miss Opal Lee. She's kind of known as the grandmother of Juneteenth. Um, she's a retired elementary school teacher and a grandmother, and she made history when she inspired U.S. President Biden to name Juneteenth a national holiday. Um, this happened in 2016. Um, she was 89 years old um, when Miss Lee made it her mission to travel across the United States, largely on foot, um, to draw attention to Juneteenth. You know, throughout the Women's and Gender Studies book series, we teach kids that you don't have to wait to start making a difference, right? You're never too young to make a difference. And in this last unit, I hope uh, that we teach students that also the work is never done. For as long as you live, um, that work continues. Another grandmother that I'd love to celebrate, and that is celebrated in the book, um, comes from Mateus and Marilia Mascarenhas. Um, so Mateus is a student of ours at the school mm. where where we all work, Mizzou Academy, and he submitted an assignment for one of his history classes on gender justice work in the 60s in Brazil, his home country. And his primary source for this incredible paper was his grandmother. Um, so Mateus interviewed his grandmother, Marilia, um, and Jill and I received this essay as we were working on the book. Uh and couldn't think of a better example, and it's a pure example too, um, than what Mateus had just done. And so we reached out to to him and his grandmother and asked if we could first include part of the essay in our book, and they graciously said yes. Um, And then we asked um, if they would be willing to speak on this topic at one of our educational conferences. And they also said yes. Um, And so getting to learn with them, to sit with them um, as they shared their story, as Mateus talked about how he wants to live his grandmother's legacy forward um, for inclusion and equity, you know, as one of my favorite moments that, that came out of this book series.
2: To add to that, I think I think a beautiful thing about how we how the way that this ends is that you know we talk so much about moving forward, but there is also the beauty of we talk a lot in these books about the shoulders that we stand on. So the people, the the history makers who have create who have built this space for us to be where we are now. So just to be able to look at these are the shoulders that we are standing on so that we can do the work that we want to do now. And then we want to be those shoulders for our students to stand on so that they continue that work. And it's just such a beautiful image to me and such a, it's so full of radical hope, which is um, a focus of our book. And I just, I just, I, I find that incredibly meaningful.
0: Something that I love about the middle school edition and the way that it speaks to the high school edition is the way that the middle school edition ends on intersectionality, which is then reexamined in much greater depth in the high school edition. So these two books are vertically aligned nicely where one feeds into the other uh, pretty seamlessly, which is really cool. I'd love to know a little bit about the pro seminar and intersectionality that you include to uh, conclude the middle school edition.
2: So this expands on the concept of intersectionality, which is a really big layered um, concept in so many different ways. But I love the way that we have been able to break this down for students to be able to, to understand it and to personalize it. So um, there are three parts to the project. I'm going to talk about the first two. The, the first one is an identity collage. So students create a self-portrait collage. They can use any sort of art medium they want, magazine, pictures, newspaper, clippings, photographs, whatever reflects their own multiple identities. And then they, um, you know, they create how, and how their story can inspire them to engage in justice work. So their identities, their strengths, their talents, just a collage of, of that captures where they are and what sort of work that they they want to do. And then students also do a research collage. collage. So they select um, a figure from, the less, from one of our lessons that they have found the most inspiring, that they have connected to the most, that has challenged them most, you know, whatever, just a person that has really um, impacted them. And then they do the same thing. They create a collage of that person. And so, um, and then it's how those ideas intersect.
0: Fantastic. Catherine, do you have any comments on uh, what you like about the intersectionality pro seminar at the end of the middle school edition?
1: Yeah. Let me talk about where it ends. Um, so, in part three, after students have engaged in this work, um, we end with Radical Hope. And so Radical Hope is a, a tethering concept throughout the books. Um, it's also included in the, in the subtitle. I first started writing about Radical Hope in 2017, um, and that was for a piece about um, gender and representation in school leadership. It's been a guiding light for me in kind of every project since. And so when we think about what does radical hope mean, um, it means really entering a space with eyes wide open. Uh, And so it means that we look critically at justice and injustice and what needs to change. And we think together about what, what will that change look like, right? How can we take a thing apart? How can we build it back or build it in a new way? How can we Reimagine, find a way forward. So that's the radical piece of radical hope is that a new way forward is possible, and that's going to require some new decisions, decisions around policy, around representation. But the hope piece is that it's possible that we believe there is a way forward. Um, and that's the message that I want students to, to leave You know, every class and every school year with, is that, yes, I have agency to make change in my community. Change needs to happen, and it can happen. I feel like that's why we teach, and that's why we write. Um, and so that's also where the Intersectionality Pro Seminar ends, um, by challenging students to take a radical hope approach um, as they they go out into the world and engage in work that matters
0: guests play a huge role in these books and I'm wondering if there's anybody who contributed specifically to the middle school edition that you that you felt like giving some additional thanks to
2: so Stephanie Dominguez is um, someone that uh, we have had the honor and privilege and pleasure of working with since she um, worked with us at Mizzou Academy. So she spent several years involved in international education for middle school and high school students. She is now a clinical psychologist in Brazil, and she works with adolescents and young women. And in her message in the book, um, And just from knowing her, I know that this is where her heart comes from and is inspiring and challenging to me, is that she emphasized the importance of uh, creating a safe space for students to live out their stories. And I think that is... you know, just a lovely way for her, you know, her information to be at the end of the book, because it really just talks about how you know this is a space that we're coming from, too. We want to create a safe space for students in our classrooms in order to explore these big ideas and to come up with um, their own beliefs and come up with their own ways to um, to impact change. And so um, just she is very inspiring in that work.
1: Mm-hmm. I'll give a shout out to Lisa DeCastro, who I don't know that we've talked about quite as much in this interview yet. Um, Lisa DeCastro served as one of our advisory editors and spoke directly into the diversity inclusion and representation units. Uh, Lisa and I were first year teachers together Mm. years ago. Um, In Oakland, California, we taught together at a K-8 school. And so we learned how to be teachers together um, which meant we made mistakes together. I probably made more than she did. Um, and we we found a way forward. My first job in education was to start a program for students with disabilities at our K-8 school. And our school hadn't served that population previously. I was um, relentless in pursuing inclusion for my student population, um, even as I was still figuring out what it meant to be a teacher. Um, and Lisa was my... First kind of friend, um, ally, advocate in that pursuit. Um, she said yes immediately. She said, we're, we're gonna figure this out and we will share student rosters. And you know, your students will be my students and my students will be your students. Having a professional and a friend um, who said yes to inclusion right away, and then we got to figure out um, what that meant for us and our students and our families really shaped um, who I am as a teacher and and we got to continue to engage in that way for a number of years and then when I left Oakland, I thought, you know, we'll never get to work together again, Um, and yet through this kind of series of serendipity, Lisa is now our elementary coordinator at Mizzou Academy and so you know 20 years later i'm still learning really important lessons from her about inclusion and working with our youngest learners in particular um which is why i think her voice was so important in the middle school book
0: so two books teaching women's and gender studies grades 9 through 12 and grades 6 through 8 huge huge undertaking massive accomplishment so much work now what i want to know is where next. Catherine, what are you working on that you're excited about for the future?
1: Oh, what a fun question. <laughs> um, well, as an educator, we're in a new um, school year for our the schools we serve in South America. Um, and we're in a new semester for our schools that we serve um, in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and so, you know, with that newness comes the sense of possibility and hope. As a writer, I'm working on two projects. Um, so one, I'm kind of always working on um, a collection of poetry uh, that I continue to, to chip away at and work at over time. I don't know what will what we'll ever come of this, um, but it brings me a lot of joy. Poetry is my first literary love. Um, and then I'm also working on, um, my first book was on wholehearted teaching. It was a longitudinal study Uh, with a group of really amazing young people. Um, I started working with them when they were juniors in high school and we continued working together uh, through their college experience. Uh, This was my dissertation work and then it, it continued and it led to this framework for how I think about teaching, learning and leadership. And so over the last eight years or so, I've been looking at that framework and thinking critically about how does it apply to school leadership today? And what does it even mean to be a school leader today? And so, the other writing project that's underway for me is on wholehearted school leadership and how can I use the lessons um, from that first project um, forward as we think about leadership?
0: How about you, Joel? What do you got going on? What, what's, what are you excited about for next?
1: So, well,
2: first I just have to say thank you for doing um, this interview with us because, um, well, for many reasons, but one is that it's inspiring to me to think how, what might I do in the future, in the future with more of this work? So, um, you know, I, we wrote these books and then I, uh, when we were gonna do this interview, I was like, what was in them again? <laughs> and so, I mean, I knew, but you know, I just had, it just had been like saturated our brains for so long and then had this little break, break from them. So just being able to revisit them and to talk to you about it and talk with Catherine about it has been really inspiring. So thank you, because I don't know what that might spark. Um, Like Catherine said, we're in the beginning of a new semester. I'm also working on revising one of my courses, Composition and Literature 1B. So that's something that I'm I'm in the middle of right now. Um, On kind of a a fun level, I'm doing um, some storytelling and creative writing for a local magazine, which I'm really enjoying. I live in the Kansas City area and I get to talk to amazing people and write about people in Kansas City community and learn about them and their families and what they're doing to contribute to our community. Um, I'm also learning about and writing about some really amazing nonprofit groups in Kansas City that I didn't even know existed. So that has been incredibly inspiring as well. And then I'm also just doing some personal work and personal writing work on, which I've been doing for a while now, on just exploring this concept. And actually, a conversation with Catherine was the impetus for this um, finding beauty and poetry in all moments. Um, You know, you have those moments where it's easy to find beauty and poetry, but also just looking for those moments in mundane moments and moments where beauty and poetry are a little bit harder to find. So,
0: I love it. Well, Dr. Katherine Fishman-Weaver and Jill Klain, authors of Teaching Women's and Gender Studies, grades 9 through 12 and grades 6 through 8, Classroom Resources on Resistance, Representation, and Radical Hope from Rutledge. Thank you so much for being here for these special two-part episodes. And uh, it's been a real pleasure learning from you and hearing about the books and seeing the ways that both of you are inspired and light up when it comes to this content. Um, I'm I'm hopeful that listeners out there who will find these books relevant and useful to their own lives will go ahead and check them out. So thank you so much for being here. It's been a real pleasure.
2: Thank Thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure talking to you.